Coming up today, we revisit the idea of herd immunity for COVID-19 and consider how the Delta variant is causing travel chaos. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Catwaller. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson announced his plans to travel into space on a July 11th test flight. His role on the mission, he says, will be to evaluate the customer spaceflight experience. It's a race to space and a race to beat Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who plans to fly to space with Blue Origin later this month. This was also the week when right to repair rules came into force in the UK. Manufacturers will now have to make spare parts available to customers in the UK It's hoped that the new rule will extend the lifespan of products like washing machines, TVs and fridges by up to 10 years. And finally, it was the week when Tim Berners-Lee sold an autographed copy of the web source code as an NFT. The auction, which was conducted by Sotheby's, saw the NFT sell for 5.4 million US dollars. Berners-Lee will donate the money to charity. Now, I don't mean to be a bit of a stickler for space facts here, but I've got a bit of a problem with Virgin Galactic and Richard Branson's claims, because I think the last Virgin Galactic trip only went around 89 kilometres above the Earth's surface, which, I mean, not to get technical about this, but if you're going to space, usually the definition of space is it's 100 kilometres, which is pretty much where Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos are going. So I think that maybe Richard Branson will become the first billionaire to go very, very close to the edge of space, but I'm not I'm not going to accept that he's going to be the first billionaire in space. Quite. Maybe he'll go higher. It just needs to push it an extra 10 kilometres or so. So you're saying that even if Branson, you know, goes up as planned on July 11th and beats Bezos on his flight, Bezos might win the race on a technicality. Well, I, I think this is quite a big technicality. Either now it's quite interesting where the definition of space exactly, you know, where the line of space begins and that's a little bit de- you know a little bit debated but i think it's more than just a technicality either either i go all the way to paris or i go you know 10 kilometers of t- you know towards paris i'm not in paris and i think that unless he goes over 100 kilometers richard branson is not the first billionaire in space i've said it i'm committing to it and if he doesn't do it i will not call him a spaceman there's always someone's got to spoil all the fun isn't there matt thank you matchily reynolds <laughs> <laughs> on to our uh, facts interesting facts of the week um we don't have any space related facts this week although thanks for that matt so just just so we're clear what is the line at which sky becomes space well my understanding is there's this thing called the Kármán line and essentially that's the point at which the atmosphere becomes so thin that the aerodynamics of conventional flight you know horizontal flight no longer work so you have to be in a rocket and that's generally 100 kilometers above the earth's surface so that's what i'm kind of going for but i know that weirdly enough this is not 
necessarily super set in stone some people have slightly different definitions but i just think look if if we can if we can set our own definitions i'm going to jump and i'm going to say two meters above ground definition of space i'm the first non-billionaire in space and you know i just think it's a free-for-all we've got to set a limit somewhere and that's how we'll define who gets first into space so the line might be arbitrary but it is still a line it is still a line and it's 100 kilometres and let's see who crosses it. Matt, what's your fact for this for us this week? So, for a complete uh, change <laughs> of gear, I learned about the first ever disposable tissues, which were Kleenex, obviously you know, super popular brand name today. So they were originally sold in the 1920s, not as a, uh, as a nose blowing item, but as makeup removers. And they were all part of the manufacturer, Kimberly Clark. They sold cold cream and all these kind of makeup removal products. And it was all about uh, using it to remove makeup and it's only after it had been on sale for a few years that people started complaining that people were using these tissues to blow their nose and then throw them away that the company was like hey wait we can just sell way more of these if we sell them as nose blowing devices nose blowing accessories whatever the right word is and they started to market them towards nose blowing instead and that's what started the disposable tissue boom and now you see them marketed everywhere as as you know things for your nose not to remove makeup that is an interesting fact Amit what have you got for us uh, I learned that there are three species of bird in Australia that are thought to hunt with fire the black kite the whistling kite and the brown falcon have been spotted carrying burning sticks in their beaks or talons and it's thought that they deliberately start fires to drive prey out of the undergrowth although this behavior has only been described and never actually photographed that is rather impressive and scary I mean, I don't think they're going to use this power against us in any way. But yeah, uncontrolled fires in, in dry brushland are a problem already without falcons and kites getting involved too. Birds using fire as a tool. Who knew? Amit knew. On to our first major story of this week. And we're talking about herd immunity. You might remember back in the early days and weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, which seems a long time ago right now. Um, certainly in the UK, there was a lot of talk about this idea of herd immunity. Herd immunity is this notion that when enough people have immunity to a disease, in this case, COVID-19, for instance, by being exposed to it and creating antibodies or by being vaccinated, then the whole population effectively becomes protected because the disease doesn't spread. The chains of transmission are broken. That was the topic of conversation back in early 2020. Matt, why are we talking about it again now? Well, the reason is, Vicky, is that a hell of a lot has changed since everyone first became rapidly acquainted with the definition of herd immunity way back at the beginning of the pandemic. And the important concept to hear, uh, the important concept here is the herd immunity threshold. So that's the percentage of the population that needs to have immunity before you can stop outbreaks from spiralling out of control, as you described. And obviously, the difference from, you know, back in March or back in, you know, February 2020 is that we do actually have quite a lot of immunity in the population now. And one of the biggest reasons for that is these hugely successful vaccination drives that some countries have seen. So we know that lots of countries have vaccinated sizable proportions of their population. So in Canada, 68% of people have had at least one vaccine dose. In the UK, it's around 66%. And in Israel, it's around 65%. So 
we're kind of approaching these herd immunity thresholds that we first heard about back in March, March 2020. Now, the country that's ahead of almost any other nation, actually ahead of pretty much any other nation, is Wales. So it's given first jabs to 71.6% of its population and just over half, I think around 51%, have had a second jab. Now, that's a huge amount of coverage when you consider that people aged under 18 aren't eligible for the vaccine. So that's 71.6% figure, that's its total population, not just of its total adult population. For its adult population, it's much, much higher than that. Now, if you add to that people that have acquired immunity through infection, there's quite a few countries where the herd immunity threshold might not be so far away now. But even though vaccination figures are going up, with Wales reaching those particularly high figures, we're still seeing case numbers rise. And in Wales, cases are doubling every seven to ten days. If we think we can vaccinate our way to herd immunity, surely we'd be expecting to see those case numbers go in the other direction and drop. But something new is happening, isn't it? The virus has changed. Exactly. The herd immunity threshold hinges on how transmissible an an infection is. So for earlier strains of COVID-19, this threshold was thought to be around 60 to 70%. And that threshold is set kind of assuming that... um, There's no lockdown and people are behaving normally. Now, with the Delta variant, scientists think that that threshold has gone up to between 80 and 85%. So that really takes the herd immunity threshold out of a range that was pretty reasonable and something we might even have crossed by now with current vaccinations to something that is much, much harder to achieve. And the reason for this is pretty simple. It's all down to the transmissibility of the Delta variant. Now, this is another walk back to early pandemic memory lane. But uh, I think you probably remember, you know, way back at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was talking about this R naught number, this reproduction value of the virus. And that basically tells you that in a normal population that has no immunity and where there's nothing uh, in place to stop people doing stuff like social distancing, it tells you the average number of people that someone infected with COVID-19 will pass the virus on to. Now, for earlier strains of the virus, this R naught number was between two and three. So if I was infected with the virus, I'd on average, infect between two and three people. Some people would infect nobody, but some people would, you know, infect six people and it would average out to between two and three. Now, initial estimates for the Delta variant are that this R naught number might be between five and seven. And so if we were talking about, you know, a completely, completely immune, naive population, you'd see it really accelerate through the population quite quickly. And that's why the herd immunity threshold has gone way up from what it was before. And it's not quite as simple as just keeping vaccinating people until you get to the magic number, that threshold that may result in herd immunity. Because some people who were vaccinated early on or who had previous COVID infections might lose that immunity over time. And it's also not as easy as just saying vaccinate everyone because some people can't be vaccinated, like people with certain health conditions or who have some allergies. And there's one big demographic that currently isn't being vaccinated. Yeah, in the UK, we're not vaccinating children. And it's really difficult to hit that threshold, that 80 or 85% threshold through vaccination, unless you're vaccinating young people. In the UK, more than 21% of people are under 18. So, I mean, it's quite simple maths, isn't it? You're not going to reach 80% if you can't vaccinate 21% 
of the population. Now, there's a slight caveat to that. It's not like young people have no immunity. Plenty of people in that group would have acquired some immunity through infection, potentially quite a sizable portion of those people, especially when you look at who's getting infected right now. But when you add in all those other people that you talked about, Vicky, people who can't have a vaccine, people who won't have a vaccine, people who are just really slow to getting around to having a vaccine, it means that pushing our vaccinated figure beyond the low 80s might be really, really difficult. It's one of those things where the closer you get to 100% or the closer you get to the mid 80s, the high 80s, it becomes really, really hard to reach that extra one or 2% because you're starting to butt against people that either you can't find them or they don't want a jab or they can't have a jab. You know, we've kind of raced through these people quite quickly, but now we're we're coming to the really, really difficult bit of it. Now, the UK has approved the Pfizer vaccine for children aged between 12 and 15, but the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation doesn't recommend vaccination for people under 18 unless they have certain pre-existing health conditions. Now, this is a little bit up for grabs in the UK. It's, it's not super clear um, whether the JCVI has made a final de- decision on this. I, I think there's some rumours that they'll be recommending to the government about, you know, about its total strategy in the next few weeks. So it might all change and the, and the government advice might be to you know, vaccinate young people. But at the moment, only people aged 16 and 17 that have certain pre-existing health conditions can get the vaccine. Other than that, everyone under 18 can't get the vaccine. Now, other countries are taking a bit of a different tack. So France is vaccinating everyone aged 12 and up. Denmark is vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds. And Israel is doing a really big vaccine drive after it had this new um, surge of Delta variant cases. It's doing a big vaccine drive for people in that same age group. So lots of countries have decided we need to vaccinate absolutely everyone and we're going to go for it. And whether or not we should vaccinate children, it's a bit of a strategic question, isn't it? Obviously, it's about weighing up the risks and benefits to the children themselves. But there's also the question of resources and where we should put them and the bigger picture of how to handle the pandemic. If you want to go for herd immunity and essentially, you know, end up with zero COVID cases, you would presumably vaccinate children, if only to stop them transmitting to other people and try to reach that herd immunity level. But if you're more concerned with simply keeping the disease burden, though, rather than stopping all transmission, then there's perhaps less urgency to vaccinate kids. And maybe you'd think, well, we should probably send these vaccines to somewhere else that hasn't got as high a vaccination rate as us yet. But based on what we know about the virus so far, could we even reach herd immunity if we wanted to? It's really difficult to know. So there are cases of breakthrough infections, which is when someone who's been fully inoculated against COVID-19 still falls ill. And usually the definition is, you know, give them three weeks after their second dose, you'd say that's pretty much as protected as you're going to get. If you fall ill with COVID-19 after that, that's, that's a breakthrough infection. Now, there's some data we have around this. So Israel's uh, largest healthcare organisation found that around half of the adults infected in the new outbreak of the Delta variant had had been inoculated with the Pfizer vaccine. That sounds kind of scary, but it's worth remembering that if you're talking about a population is almost completely vaccinated, then by definition, most of the cases that you get are going to be breakthrough cases. So it doesn't mean that the protection offered by the vaccine is super low. It just means that if everyone is vaccinated, then even if one person breaks through or 10 people, you know, 10 people have cases, it's much more likely those cases will be in vaccinated people. But it does show that it is something that can happen. 
We're also seeing this in India. So there's one report uh, that in the eastern state of Odisha, which reported 274 cases in fully vaccinated healthcare workers between March and June 2021. Now, it's worth noting that breakthrough infections are pretty rare and people who are infected after vaccination have a much lower chance of serious illness or death. And this goes back to what you were saying, Vicky, about what the point of vaccination is. Is it to stop transmission? Is it to stop serious disease? Is it to stop anyone uh, getting cases of of COVID-19? And we need to remember that vaccines work on multiple levels. And the most important thing, you know, the the thing we want to stop is to stop serious illness and to stop hospitalisation and to stop people dying. Now, it'd be really good if people also don't get ill and don't have mild cases of COVID-19. It'd be even better if it stops people transmitting the disease as well. But there are all these kind of different levels that vaccines can work at. And even if we say, oh, well, the vaccine hasn't stopped the virus circulating, if the virus, if the vaccine has stopped people getting serious illness, then you can still say, well, it's super worth vaccinating all these people. You know, it still has a lot of benefit. So I think when we're talking about can we reach herd immunity? Should we reach herd immunity? We need to think, well, what are the things we're trying to achieve with this? You know, in the UK, there's been a lot of focus on stopping serious disease. In other countries, it's all about stopping transmission. So you can really kind of judge how effective your, you know, your vaccine strategy is, depending on what outcome you're hoping to see from it. And considering where we're at right now, one of the complications we've talked about previously, quite recently on the podcast, is travel. It's one thing increasing immunity across a population if your borders are closed and trying to reach that herd immunity threshold, you know, in a sort of isolated place. But with people coming in from other countries that have probably lower vaccination rates than the UK, you're likely to keep reintroducing the virus from elsewhere. So as we get closer and closer to completing our vaccine rollout here in the UK, what can we expect to see happen in the future? One epidemiologist that our reporter spoke with said that it's likely we'll reach a point in the UK where you have different clusters of infections that continually emerge from time to time within localised communities. But it's pretty unlikely we'll see these mass waves that we've seen over the past year and and that we're kind of seeing now. That's not super dissimilar from something like measles. So the UK had eradicated measles and then in 2017 we lost our measles eradication Um, status because we basically hadn't really vaccinated quite enough people. And so you see pockets of measles come up, but they tend to be fairly localised. They tend not to get out of control. Now, there's this bigger problem, like you say, Vicky, and that's that in lots of, part of the wo- lots of parts of the world, they don't have anywhere near the vaccine coverage that we have in the UK. And that's a really, really big problem because more transmission means more op- opportunities for mutations that could increase immune escape. So the whole question around herd immunity isn't just a question for individual countries. It's about how can the whole world work together to get vaccine coverage high enough to slow transmission. And that might mean that instead of vaccinating young people in the UK, for instance, you say, well, we just want everyone in India to get a first dose or to get two doses. So the people that are most most at risk, um, you know, can be protected and we can slow down transmission there. So I think that it would be a little bit um, short-sighted for countries to just, just look at stopping transmission within their own border. Because as we saw with the Delta variant, actually, 
the picture can completely change if something happens somewhere else in the world. And now we find ourselves with a different situation and having to respond to that. So really, this question becomes much bigger and it becomes about how we can get global coverage enough so we can slow transmission. So we're not having so much worry about new variants. Thanks, Matt. And let us know if you have any thoughts on any of the stories in the podcast this week. We're at podcast at Wired co.uk we'd be really interested to hear how the vaccine rollout is going wherever you are what strategy you think is going to work best uh, what stage you're at and what where you're seeing things heading in the future and speaking of travel which is obviously a big part of this puzzle as we sort of look to how we're going to escape the current phase of where we're at in the pandemic our next story is all about how the delta variant is impacting the travel sector amit that's right. So first, I wanted to ask you guys if any of you have attempted to plan a trip abroad this summer. I had a vague idea that, oh, maybe I could go to Portugal when it was put on the green list. But um, it was probably a good thing that I didn't manage to do enough planning before it was then taken off the green list. Uh, I've got a partly um, booked uh, holiday for later in the year a family holiday that has been sort of like scheduled for quite a while um, that's supposed to be going to Turkey um, I'm not sure if that's obviously going to happen yet or not um, some of the family have sort of like booked uh, their tickets already although we held off last year so um, there's something penciled in but definitely not quite going to happen and maybe I'm just completely pessimistic but I'm, I'm not even allowing myself to entertain the possibility I, I've got this slight sense that you know, maybe in October I could go maybe somewhere a bit more far flung and everything's changed. But I don't want to let that hope creep in just to become disappointed inevitably. Yeah, we've gone fully the other way. So we've booked something for October to a country that's currently on the amber list. We're hoping it's going to be on the green list by the time October rolls around or at least not on the red list. Uh, so we can still go, but it's all cancellable. And I think, you know, for anyone who is trying to plan a foreign holiday, it's dealing with this massive changing rules and regulations and countries going on and off green and red and amber lists that, that's been, frankly, very, very confusing. And the Delta variant only made this worse. But Matt, what's the latest on whether we in the UK can travel abroad and, and where we can actually go. Yeah, so borders and travel in the UK have been a pretty controversial issue for quite some time now. So throughout the pandemic, the UK has been uh, pretty reluctant to impose like strict border controls. And it took a long time for sort of like testing at airports and the infrastructure and quarantine rules to be put in place, really. And there was a bit of a mess last summer. Um, and for this year, uh, things have pretty much continued in the same sort of vein, really. So uh, for people wanting to travel abroad from the UK at the moment, there is a traffic light system which was introduced, I think it was earlier this year. Um, and there are travel restrictions in other nations, obviously, that impact people traveling uh, to the UK, but we're mostly talking here about sort of outbound travel. Um, and the government has given countries a red, amber or green status, and these are based on vaccination numbers, infection rates, uh, the likelihood of sort of any variants or known or new variants in those areas. Um, and briefly, so these different levels, they mean if something is on the green list, uh, you don't need to quarantine on return, but you must be tested on departure and arrival using PCR tests and receive negative results or have have to go, then go into quarantine uh, if a country is on the amber list which most countries are at the moment uh, amber or red um, then people will need to uh, take the pre and post travel test but 
If it's on Amber, you have to quarantine for 10 days after you return. And if it's on the red list, it isn't a ban on travel, but it's effectively uh, uh, saying do not travel. So uh, if you go to a country on the red list and return, as well as taking tests and having to get negative tests, you will also have to pay for a 10-day stay in a managed quarantine uh, centre in the UK. Um, so... At the end of June, there's a there was about 10 to 15 places roughly on the green list, which included Antarctica, Balearic Islands, Bermuda, Malta, basically lots of islands. Um, and there's not many places on that list, essentially. And one of the big issues at the moment is that these can change very quickly. As Vicky mentioned, uh, Portugal earlier, um, that was put onto the green list uh I think it was sort of a couple of months ago, roughly. Uh, and then at the start of June, it was taken off. It was it was moved from green to amber very quickly. And people that had already booked tickets or were in Portugal and gone on holiday on a sort of like quick, uh, quickly planned break, uh, they had to either quarantine on their return, which many of them probably wouldn't have planned for, which would affect working conditions and things like that, or uh, come back early to avoid the sort of cutoff. And really, it was all a bit of a sort of hurried mess that made a lot of people get very angry. So I shouldn't book that big summer getaway to Antarctica just yet. Now, this is obviously having a big impact on the travel sector, who are used to being able to predict demand months or years in advance. And it's it's wreaking havoc with things like ticket pricing, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, so one of the ways that ticket pricing for flights normally works, uh, and to some extent it still does at the moment, but we'll get onto some other issues with this uh, in, in the next few minutes, is through a setup, a setup called dynamic pricing, which essentially means that prices tend to rise as the number of seats uh, available decrease. So if you book early, uh, when a plane is theoretically empty, you can get low cost tickets. But when the flight reaches higher percentages of its capacity, the price for the remaining tickets begins to rise. And that's obviously changed because of the pandemic, right? So ordinarily, as you say, passengers would spread out booking and buying holidays over the course of a year. But the uncertainty has thrown all that out the window. Um, Passenger numbers in UK airports were a quarter in 2020 of what they were in 2019. Planes are sitting empty for ages. Airlines don't know what routes they should run because they don't know whether the planes are going to be empty or not. And then, then a country gets placed on the green list and there's a stampede for tickets. We've seen prices for flights to Ibiza, Malta, Menorca, Mallorca trebling within days after destinations have been added to the green list and um, kind of wreaking havoc with these dynamic pricing algorithms to hike up the cost. So what impact is this having on the industry and how are airlines managing this? Uh, are they having to abandon the traditional pricing systems that they use? So aviation and travel experts we spoke to say that it's going to be a very difficult summer for those trying to manage and plan uh, the logistics around airline travel, both on the side of pricing, but also sort of planning flights and uh, and where which destinations they can travel to. Um, and all of this is sort of mixed in with the sort of like rapid increases in demand, as you as you just mentioned. So uh, when uh, the green list in the UK was updated uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Skyscanner, which is a travel company, has seen a 217% increase in bookings over the last week compared to the week before. So people are very much uh, sort of like wanting to go away where possible. Uh, but there is uh, this sort of like unpredictability and sort of like chaos being thrown into the system um, and the core reason why sort of like the ticket pricing issues uh, and sort of uncertainty and, and sky high prices for some destinations are, are going on is because really of a sort of a 
basically a data deficit. So yo-yo pricing is, pricing is going to happen because of a lack of the kinds of information that have typically enabled airlines to work at their most efficient. So uh, for instance, airlines used to be able to explain the uh, minute differences between a journey between, say, Newcastle and London on a Tuesday morning in February and the same flight in Wednesday in July. Um, the patterns that existed in the past, so how people would normally travel, the sort of like predicted demands and those sort of forecasts are completely blown out of the water, which means that airlines are really in a tricky situation in terms of planning. And then that impacts the uh, the, the supply of the, the seats and the pricing as well. So low cost airline with air said last month that half of its bookings are currently occurring within two weeks of a flight's departure and 80% of them totally within a month. And that's really a world away from the sort of norms uh, that are, have emerged as sort of best practices and ways for people to get the lowest prices. Um, and overall, sort of, uh, just to sort of compare this to pre-pandemic times, in, in Europe, normally uh, people would book tickets on, on average around 120 days before their departure. So really the changes that are sort of we're seeing in terms of like travel lists and restrictions and regulations and everything are really making a big impact on the industry itself. Yeah, and that's really problematic because one of the ways that airlines can save money is by having these long-term deals in place with airports or with plane manufacturers. You know, even if your fleet of planes isn't actually flying, you still have to maintain it. And, you know, you need your planes to be in the right places if you're going to put on extra flights. It's not as if the day before you can say, okay, well, loads of people suddenly want to go to Portugal, but if all your planes are in Latvia, right, you've got a big problem. And it's been exacerbated by the uncertainty over the Delta variant in the UK in particular, you know, we're not sure what the rules are going to be for travelling to the EU. Germany is really lobbying the rest of the EU to bar British tourists because of this Delta variant, which is, you know, rampant here. And this is specifically causing problems for UK airlines and for industries in other countries that cater to UK travellers, right? It is. Um, so for airlines and the travel industry in general, which is obviously not just limited to airlines, there's also this uh, industry of hotels and people that work in the uh, the economy uh, as well. Um, this could be a really bad thing for their profits over the next few months and year, really. So uh, according to one of the experts that we spoke to on this, uh, the reality is that a lot of airlines only make money when their planes are full or close to full. Um, and that is very much the case as well for some of the businesses that service tourists once they sort of have an idea on uh, on demand so there is uh, people that work in the industry can often be uh, employed sort of on a sort of uh, freelance ad hoc basis uh, or for whole seasons so there's a lot of that sort of uh, sort of flexibility within the market and being able to travel or having travel limited at a few days notice could actually really impact the industry overall. And if we take Portugal, for instance, as we mentioned a couple of times, um, when the news leaked out ahead of the government announcement about it being taken off the green list um, at the start of last month, at the start of June, uh, it wiped hundreds of millions of dollars off the uh, value of tour operators and airlines and prompted significant anger. At the time, Ryanair had almost 600 flights booked to Portugal. EasyJet had more than 500. I think in total there were 1,800 going from the UK to Portugal for June, uh, which has obviously changed. Uh, the whole setup was upended um, and the people we spoke to said the travel industry should be expecting 
more of this over the summer as the sort of uncertainty around variants and spread and transmission and different countries regulations change as well uh, and there is a good chance that some airlines might not be able to make it through this difficult period whether it's the summer or a quieter winter period coming up as well um, and it's perhaps why EasyJet funded a study by Yale University scientists suggesting that uh, intra-Europe travel wouldn't significantly affect the cases le- case levels in the UK. So there is this also this lobbying going on from airlines and uh, those involved with the industry saying that the uh, that travel should be opened up as soon as possible. Slightly disingenuous study from EasyJet there because obviously the, the real concern isn't that it's going to affect case levels in the UK. Germany's worried about it affecting case levels in Germany and the rest of the EU. That's why they're considering stopping British travellers from travelling to Europe. Now, this is also obviously this is causing short term chaos, but it's also causing some long term changes. So we got the sense that the algorithms that they used to use for dynamic pricing are actually being temporarily replaced and they've gone back to using human intervention to adapt to this new reality where before airlines were used to selling out every single flight and now they're not doing that the dynamic pricing and these sudden surges when a country gets added to the green list mean they have to actually manually change prices and making kind of even medium-term predictions is impossible basically because we don't know whether there's going to be COVID passports we don't know which countries are going to be allowed to go to so this short-term uncertainty is causing a real problem but it could also lead to kind of longer term changes in the travel industry it could and it's probably not a surprise to say that the travel industry that comes out of uh the pandemic when it comes to a stage when we can all uh travel again freely and as as mentioned earlier as well much of this depends on sort of uh vaccinations around the world it isn't just a problem for one country it's something that uh many countries need to sort of handle and tackle in sort of a coordinated way as possible the travel industry will come out of this probably looking very differently um and sort of airlines at the moment are stuck in a tricky short to medium term position if they leave too many flights on and demand doesn't cover the cost they're going to end up losing money or cancelling them which can be obviously bad for reputation as well Uh, and there is uh, efforts from in the UK the airport operators association demand demand at the government either let flights restart more more flights happen or help to fund its survival but beyond this there's also the sort of the role of business travel and people's appetite for travel in general um and sort of with it with business travel we've obviously seen it drop off the cliff completely in the last year um, and we don't ever know if this will return to normal people have learned that they can uh, work from home and work remotely and i think that they will going forward question whether you need to take a flight which is obviously very bad for the environment uh, across half the world just to conduct a couple of meetings so there's a lot of uncertainty ahead i think that's a really interesting point about business travel the last place i went to before the pandemic was to barcelona for a big sort of tech conference and that whole concept just seems completely bizarre at this point i don't know what you guys think i know i think we've probably talked about this on the podcast before but can you see yourself flying to another country to attend a big conference with thousands of people in the future or do you think those kind of things will move online I could see actually maybe conferences there could be a place for if it's somewhere where you're seeing, you know, new tech products or something like that, like you need to be physically there to have the full experience. Um, I think maybe what people might cut back on is the, yeah, getting people to fly into a business center to have a meeting, like to have a board meeting or something like that. Now everyone's so used to using video conferencing technology, that just seems a waste of everyone's time. So I think there'll be pushback on that kind of thing but I don't know I feel like for me at least virtual events haven't quite got to that space yet where you can have an event 
online. I, th- I think that is very much the case. And I'm actually, uh, I think next month or maybe later this month, supposed to be doing some travel for work around uh, promoting uh, the the wired artificial intelligence book that we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago and this is uh, this is yeah going to a different country to talk about the launch of a book and it's it's exciting to be traveling again i guess but uh, there is this question of like is it something that i should justify traveling for uh, is it something that uh, comes with a risk and uh, and everything else and i think at the moment for me it is something that will be will be good to do but i think that other things where you maybe don't have to be there in person in the future might be something i would reconsider and yeah i'll obviously be going through that quarantine process when i get back if you are listening from Albania, uh, be sure to look out for Matt Burgess on his uh, his book tour for the Wired Guide to Artificial Intelligence. You can get it from all good bookshops. <laughs> We've got some feedback from you this week. Um, Matt Burgess, actually, we had multiple people write in about your story on the podcast last week on the Golden Triangle and the warehouses being built around Northampton. Yeah, we did a, a, a hugely popular story for the podcast. Uh, who would have get, who would have guessed it? Um, so Dee wrote in to say that they had a surreal moment as they were running through the woods uh, that faced destruction that we talked about in the podcast. So they were actually run, listening to the podcast, hearing about the woods that were going to be destru- destroyed or, or at least up for sort of like consideration for, for destruction while they were there, which, yeah, is probably uh, uh, something that probably only happened uh, to Dee in this case. Um, but they said that the whole area is beautiful uh, and uh, has been under sort of continued threat of destruction from from more developments, especially warehouses over recent years. Uh, And they said that for them, there are uh, no benefits, but only devastation in terms of continued loss of beautiful countryside and the wildlife. And they sent in some pictures as well. It looks very nice, to be honest. Um, And uh, they also sent in uh, some pictures of the warehouses and the area and it and said that it sadly feels like there'll be a lot more sort of construction of this uh, going forward. Um, although there had been some sort of change in the local politicians and the Green Party had won some uh, seats there um, in, in local elections recently. So there's hope in, in that respect for uh, that piece of woodland. Uh, and our second email on this was uh, John wrote in to say uh, that he enjoyed the uh, Golden Triangle segment and was uh, it was a fascinating segment and that he remembers when we last talked about the Golden Triangle around the great KFC chicken shortage of 2018, which only seems like yesterday, but was three years ago now. Uh, and John asked a question uh, about sort of drone usage in the UK for parcel delivery. Uh, he said that he wouldn't dream of doing it, but what are the rules around intercepting them, say, with a butterfly net or an air? rifle um i think that um i mean i wouldn't advise it i'm not sure what the laws are in particular but we've still a long way from drone deliveries i think in general so there's been quite a few pilots over the uh, around the world on on this in the last few years but they including in the uk from amazon but it seems to be something that is a little bit uh, far off so uh, maybe uh, talk of d- drone disruption will be something that happens in the future <laughs> And Lucas writes in, Amit, about your fact on Mufasa's roar. This is from a few podcasts ago, so remind us what your fact was. Uh, I can't actually remember. It was something to do with the the roar of Mufasa from The Lion King and the different sounds that they had to use. I think it was like a mishmash of different animal noises that they had to use to create an authentic sounding lion's roar because obviously they couldn't go out into the world and mic up a, a real lion. Um, and then we, from that, we then started talking about the MGM lion and the logo and how they recorded that sound of the lion for the logo. And, and Lucas actually sent a photo of the 
lion being recorded for the MGM logo, the, the you know cinema company. Uh, and he actually says that since 1924, MGM has used eight different lions for its logo. So uh, I learned something. And he says that I hope I returned the favour of me teaching you something because the board is pretty one-sided so far. I think I speak for all of us when I say, please send us your facts. <laughs> please do. It's uh, the usual address, podcast.wired.co.uk. Let us know your interesting facts, your corrections to our interesting facts, your thoughts on where space actually really begins um, and all the other stories we've discussed this week. Are you thinking of travelling internationally? Do you think it's far too early to even consider that? Are we selfish for even thinking about going on holiday at the moment? What are your thoughts? And uh, what's the vaccination rates looking at like near you? What do you make of herd immunity? Podcast at wire.co.uk. We love receiving your emails. And we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.